The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. From our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC. If you want to read all my columns in The Hill, you can find them at uh, muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon front slash articles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. We've got both domestic and foreign policy covered today on Deadline DC. In the first half hour, our guest will be Paul Lisnick, who is the legal and political analyst for WGN-TV. Uh, he's here to talk about the uh, murder of uh, Tyree Nichols by Memphis police. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, Donald Trump's legal jeopardy. There's always plenty of that going around. Uh, then in the second half hour, we'll talk about national security policy with uh, CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, Cedric will join us to give a situation update on the war in Ukraine and also talk about troubled relationship between the People's Republic of China and the United States. But before we get to our first guest, Paul Lisnick, uh, we're going to play uh, this clip. And the clip is from uh, uh, uh Antonio Romanucci, uh, who is Tyree Nichols' attorney. He was a human pinata for those police officers. It was an unadulterated, unabashed, nonstop beating of this young boy for three minutes. Oh my God. That is what we saw in that video. Ben told you what we saw. Not only was it violent, it was savage. Oh my God. Why? Where was the proportionality that is required in order for those officers to use that type of force against a defenseless young man? And where did he want to go? He wanted to go home. He was trying to run home because he knew that's where he could be safe with his mother. He wanted to be safe, but he couldn't be from the police officers who somehow, this is what we know, I think anticipated the violence when they initially made the traffic stop. And that's because we know these officers, at least some of them, were from the organized crime unit. They were in unmarked cars. Why are they conducting traffic stops? It's a racist traffic stop, is what it is. 
these police officers felt in their mind they knew they could get away with this sort of violence. Why? Because there's a sense of impunity, there's a sense of culture within the police department, not only here but across the country, that they will hide for themselves, they will cover up for themselves, they to you. So help me God, when is this going to stop? Amen. That was Antonio Romanucci, who is uh, the attorney for Tyree uh, Nichols' family, uh, talking about the tragedy in Memphis. Our guest in this half hour is Paul Lisnick, who is the legal and political analyst for WGN-TV uh, in Chicago. Uh, he is also the host of the uh, political report uh, that airs every Sunday morning uh, on WGN. And if you're in the viewing area, you have WGN on your cable system, uh, please watch. I'm sure you'll be fascinated. He is also the author of more than a dozen books, including uh, Assumed Treason, which is uh, on the shelf behind Paul. Yep, there it is. Uh, Paul, uh, the uh, killing of uh, Tyree Nichols is probably the most uh, tragic uh, police event uh, since the uh, since the uh, uh, killing of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, and you know you. You've had, and the Chicago police have had uh, some run-ins, uh, which have caused controversy. Uh, what needs to be done uh, so we don't have any more of these tragic events? Well, let me take a step back. because, And as you know, Brad, part of my background includes uh, jury consulting and trial consulting. And my office handled the Rodney King cases back in the 90s. And that, that's where I would go back in terms of trying to envision events like this. Um, that were captured on videotape, and that's what's really so critical here. Yeah. Imagine what the story would be if there were no were no videotape, there wasn't that camera up on the uh, light pole and all that kind of thing. So the question here politically um, is what will Congress do about it? And it's hard to know what they'll do because in the last couple of years, in 2021, of course, there was uh, an act that looked like it was going to get through, um, and it was by Cory Booker and Tim Scott, a Democrat, Republican, and it was going to do all sorts of great things that, that every, both sides agreed to, and then it just kind of fell apart at the end. It had to do over uh, over partial immunity and other issues. Republicans seemed to be up against those pieces which would limit um, the, the, the rights of cops or what you can do with regard to police officers, and Democrats, of course, keep wanting to put all those limits on, and Republicans want to put more resources maybe than Democrats want. There was also a bill back in 2020, which would have ended chokeholds and done other things. And Kamala Harris, back when she was a senator, um, just blocked it, basically saying this is just giving, giving lip service to the issue. So should they be able to get something done? Of course they should, but it looks like politics gets in the way every time. And if you want to say, no, this time is different, uh, it's different some of the, uh, from some of the previous cases, I don't know that if George Floyd didn't produce it, but, you know, switch topics. Uh, if in the world of um, Sandy Hook and some of these other I events where kids were killed and such, if that didn't create any kind of action and gun control, why will this create any kind of action in the world of police reform? And I don't think it will. I believe the piece of legislation you're referring to is the uh, George uh, Floyd Policing Act. Well, in your opinion, what needs to be done 
to uh, prevent further acts like this? Well, first of all, the fact that we have body cams is really critical. So uh, the fact that they, but of course, all these things are re are required on a local level or a state level. They're not required federally. Um, but that's very important because the body cams were critical. It also then raises the question, if these officers knew they were wearing body cams and they did, I mean, they, they have them all the time. Why isn't that a block? So the reality of it is, while I don't know what led these officers to, to do what they did, you know, they have the Scorpion, you, you made reference to this, but the Scorpion unit, which is now disbanded in Memphis, they have similar kinds of uh, divisions like that pretty much everywhere. And so what is in the mind of those police officers in terms of the power they hold and the power that they can yield? Um, and again, the question raised by the Romanucci quote, which is, you know, these guys are in an unmarked car looking for critical crime. What are they doing a traffic stop for? I mean, I don't know the answer to those questions. Time may tell uh, when ultimately there's a trial and perhaps statements. But th the point is, what can be done? To me, it has to be along the, the lines of carefully limiting the kinds of things that officers can do, but except officers also have a job to do. And so we know in certain cities, like here in Chicago, where I live, there are issues and there are provisions which say cops can't, for example, go after somebody um, who's fleeing a scene without certain conditions present. I mean, so you, you don't want to make this a jigsaw puzzle for police officers too, you know, who basically say, well, my hands are tied. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a really tough road to hoe, but I think somewhere in the, in the world of having officers checked mentally uh, on a regular basis, make sure they're okay. Um, you know, I'm not saying these guys were or weren't, I don't know, but, but basically making sure everybody is healthy and whatever, something along those lines one could think could pass a, on a bipartisan basis where neither side should have a problem with it, but who knows? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's very little hope that there'll be any action in Congress uh, because of uh, the fact that uh, apparently Democrats and Republicans can't come to an agreement on what is necessary to do. And, well, I, and by the way, if I could just add in, especially now, because you now yeah. have a Republican-controlled House for whom I doubt Chuck Schumer will take anything up, and anything that originates in the Senate is going to be dead on arrival in the House. So the politics are so pervasive here that even trying to do something and get it right, which you did have in the previous Congress where you got an infrastructure bill through and you actually got things through with bipartisan support, even though, you know, basically Democrats could have carried most of that, and some of it they did. The bottom line to it, again, is that um, politics are so pervasive and divisive right now that nobody will agree, even if they could agree and did agree, they just won't. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break uh, for our radio listeners, but we will continue with Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our uh, segment with Paul Lisnick, legal and political analyst for WGN-TV. So if you're watching, don't go anywhere. If you're listening, we'll be back with you in a couple minutes. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, our guest in this half hour, Paul Lisnick, uh, who, among other things, uh, hosts the uh, Political Report, which you can see every Sunday morning on WGN TV, either if you live in the Chicago metro area or if you can get WGN on your cable system. And we stream, by the way. It's, it's And stream, so you can watch it wherever you are. Uh, let's uh, switch to another topic. And by the way, for our radio listeners, uh, if you'd like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, you can see Deadline DC on uh, twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon 
or on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Uh, let's turn to another regular topic when we have Paul on, uh, Donald Trump's legal jeopardy. Uh, let's talk about, uh, it seems to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong about this, that uh, former President Trump uh, faces uh, possibly faces some serious legal jeopardy in Fulton County, Georgia, as a result of a phone call he made to the Republican Secretary of State asking him to find enough votes uh, to get him Georgia's electoral votes. Can you comment on that case, Paul? Yeah, I mean, most people right up until a week or two ago would have said that his biggest danger were the documents at Mar-a-Lago case because that's about as open and shut as you could get at that time. That's changed. We can talk about it if you choose to. But with regard to Georgia, we now know that um, the DA there, Fannie Willis, has, is, 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 you know, is about to, as she said, charges are imminent. But here's the thing. People that think that Trump is going down in that, uh, and I understand why, they, and I certainly understand why Democrats and whatever would think that and want it, but don't be so sure. And that's because if primarily the evidence they have against him is that tape, remember, all it takes is a good lawyer to, to, to say in court that that tape doesn't say what you think it says, that it doesn't mean what you think it means, that he was simply saying that he believed he won uh, and he really is just trying to get them to make sure they did the right thing. My point is you can spin that tape and for your viewers or listeners who uh, hear me say that right now who don't agree with that position, they're ready to call me names. I, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with anything. I'm saying that that's what a good lawyer representing Trump will be able to do. And so you got to reach the standard of guilt uh, by a reasonable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, and that is not going to be easy if that's the evidence. Now, if everybody else involved says that Trump put pressure on everybody and on and on and on, that's a much stronger case. So yes, he faces legal jeopardy there, but I still think Mar-a-Lago was the, was the more open and shut case until, of course, Biden and Pence and who knows who else has documents hanging around next to their Corvettes in their garage. Well, let me ask you about uh, presidential papers. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, a couple months ago, uh, the FBI raided his home in Mar-a-Lago, found all sorts of top secret and classified documents. And as you said, there was a lot of discussion about his legal liability. Uh, well, then they found some top secret documents in uh uh, Joe Biden's home in Delaware and also at uh, his uh, former office for the, at the University of Pennsylvania Biden Center. Uh, and then uh, last week, uh, Mike Pence, who had said before that he was sure that he didn't have any top secret documents, uh, his lawyers came forward and said they did find legal documents. So do you think this is going to get Trump off the hook? Well, there's two aspects to this, political and legal. On the on the legal aspect of that, that's where the differences are. And I got to tell you, I talk about this a lot on the air, and boy, does that trigger the heat, am, heat uh, hate email from everybody uh, when I try and explain the legal differences, because of course, if you're a Trump supporter, you don't want to hear this piece of it. But the, the bottom line to it is, I should say on my guest this weekend will be Congressman um, uh, Darren LaHood. He is working with, that Republican is working with Democrat Mike Quigley to actually draft legislation to address some of these, who's got the paper issues. But the bottom line is there's a problem in terms of the way classified documents are handled. Legally speaking, what Trump did, what all three of them did was wrong. Nobody should have documents. They're all wrong. 
But given the way these things are handled legally, when somebody finds that they have a document and they call up the FBI and the archives, I've got this, come get them, that's usually the end of it. At most, maybe there's a fine or something like that. And that's what happened here with both Pence and Biden. Um, with Trump, of course, it's very clear that Trump was not going to turn over the documents he's claiming, but I declassified everything on and on with all the excuses. The bottom line is there is an obstruction case there that doesn't exist with Biden or with Pence. And that's the legal component. So legally speaking, I do believe that the special prosecutors would for Trump will recommend to Merrick Garland that he file a case there because that's their job. Merrick Garland has to deal with the legal and the political. And on the political front, of which Merrick Garland tries to keep himself out of the politics, it's why he appoints Republican U.S. attorneys for everything, uh, to show that it's, he's, his hands are off of it. The bottom line there is going to be the fact that Biden came out and made the comment that, you know, how careless and how anybody could have a document that's ridiculous. Pence did the same thing. There's a, a, an NBC poll uh, that came out today or yesterday, which basically said people are as concerned about Biden having them as they were about Trump having them. Nobody gets the legal nuances in any of this or the differences in, in any of this. If you're a Trump supporter, you never cared that he had the documents, but you do care that Biden had them. And if you are somebody who doesn't like President Trump, then of course what he did was much, much worse than what Biden or Pence did. Legally speaking, what Trump did is worse than Pence and Biden because he obstructed. Politically speaking, it's a disaster for for Biden, perhaps as much as it is for Trump, politically. Yeah, it's sort of like a legal distinction without a political difference. Yeah, great way to put it. Uh, okay. Uh, let's uh, now we're in the subject of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, we've obviously got a presidential race uh, coming up uh, in 2024. Uh, indications are that Joe Biden is going to run for re-election. I assume that would preclude uh, other Democratic challengers like Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker from running for president. Well, would it? Well, it's interesting that you bring up Pritzker because um, covering him here in Illinois, as I do, but he is a national name. I think most of your viewers and listeners know who we're talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> the night of um, the night he won, excuse me, swallow something there. <clears throat> the night he won. That's the election, all right. I got my water handy. Okay. Too. <laughs> the night he won the election, his victory speech was that of a presidential candidate. And I said that on air. I mean, he literally spoke to national issues, national concerns. But what office is this guy running for? At his inauguration, which we had just last week or so, maybe two weeks ago, um, he gave the governor's speech, right? He spoke about the state, and that's what he should have done. But I was intrigued the other day when Ron DeSantis of Florida, who, of course, as you know, is attempting to ban everything tied to, you know, same sex everything and gay marriage and whatever it is he's doing down there and books. God, I hope he doesn't. Uh ban that soon treason. Uh, yeah, but me too. I mean, there's other reasons to ban that, but not, yeah. not that one. But so anyway, uh, but because of what he's doing and J.B. Pritzker sends a letter down to Florida, basically going after him about this. What are you doing? You shouldn't. And of course, it's within Pritzker's, uh, Pritzker's political view that he would not like what Santos did. But why is the governor of Illinois sending a, a letter to the governor of Florida, who's probably also running for president down there? I think it's all about presidential aspirations. We'll see how it plays out in time. Will people run against Joe Biden? Uh, it will probably scare most people off. But to be honest, I'm thinking Biden may still be better off if down the line he decides he shouldn't be. Uh, that's all the time we have with our guest, uh, Paul Lisnick, uh, legal and political analyst for uh, WGN-TV in Chicago. 
also the host of the Political Report, which you can see uh, locally in the Chicago area or uh, online uh, since it's uh, uh, since it's on the internet. And I suppose you can some people, especially in the Midwest, have WGN on their cable systems. Uh, so thanks, Paul. We look forward to having you back. Always good to be with you, Brad. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Deadline DC right after this message. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we're going to, we talked about uh, legal policy and uh, domestic policy in the uh, first half hour. We're going to talk about uh, foreign policy and national security in this half hour. Uh, our guest will be Cedric Layton, and we'll bring Cedric right on after we play this clip uh, from President Biden talking about the U.S. resolve to continue uh, the fight against Russia in Ukraine. The United States, standing shoulder to shoulder with allies and partners, is going to continue to do all we can to support Ukraine. Putin expected Europe and the United States to weaken our resolve. He expected our support for Ukraine to crumble with time. He was wrong. He was wrong. And he was wrong from the beginning, and he continues to be wrong. We are united. America's united, and so is the world. And we approach the one-year mark, as we do, of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We remain united and determined, as ever, in our conviction and our cause. These tanks are further evidence of our enduring, unflagging commitment to Ukraine and our confidence in the skill of the Ukrainian forces. As I told President Zelensky when he was here, and today's his birthday, by the way, in December, we're with you for as long as it takes, Mr. President. Ukrainians are fighting an age-old battle against aggression and domination. It's a battle Americans have fought proudly time and again. And it's a battle we're going to make sure the Ukrainians are well-equipped to fight as well. This is about freedom. Freedom for Ukraine. Freedom everywhere. It's about the kind of world we want to live in, the world we want to leave to our children. So may God protect the brave Ukrainian defenders of their country and keep the flame of liberty burning brightly as we can. That was President Biden, of course, uh, speaking about the American resolve to resist the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our guest in this half hour to talk about national security policy is CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, Colonel Layton served in the Air Force as an intelligence officer for more than 20 years. Uh, he is now the chairman of Cedric Layton Associates and Cedric Layton International Strategies. Uh, Cedric's uh, Twitter handle is Cedric Layton. Uh, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Cedric. Thanks for joining us. Good to be uh, back with let, you, Brad. Thank let's you. start. Uh, what's, what's happening in in, uh, in Ukraine right now? Uh, there's been a lot of fighting in the eastern part of the country uh, where the Russians have uh, apparently uh, taken over a key city in the eastern part of the country. Uh, what what exactly is going on in Ukraine right now? 
So, Brad, the uh, the biggest thing is that the Russians have apparently captured the town of Solodar, which is near another place uh, called Bakhmut. Neither one of these have very much strategic significance, except for the fact that they've become symbols uh, for both the Russians and for the Ukrainians. The area around Bakhmut uh, and Solodar has uh, salt mines, it has gypsum mines, uh, so there is some economic utility to having uh, these areas. Uh, Bakhmut also sits astride a major highway uh, that goes into Kharkiv and then further west to, to Kyiv. Uh, but having said that, uh, none of these cities is uh, really towns, uh, is really a gateway into any other part without some other major things happening. Uh, so the gains by the Russians where they're throwing a lot of artillery, a lot of uh, personnel at these, uh, at these particular areas, uh, none of these gains uh, really amount to much except for that symbolic value. So if the Russians can capture something, they're going to tout that as being a major victory, even if it isn't. And they will try to use that from a propaganda standpoint uh, to further their cause and to uh, kind of be a signal for the next phase of their offensive operations. Now, I read somewhere last week uh, that... Uh, some of the NATO allies uh, would prefer a change in strategy and have Ukraine uh, drive south uh, instead of uh, being uh, tied up in the east. Can you speak on that? Yes, the uh, what has happened is that the Ukrainians have been drawn into uh, what the Russians are doing. The Russians are concentrating their firepower in this northeastern area around Bakhmut, uh, and uh, it's a, an artillery duel basically between the two uh, warring factions. Uh, the What the United States and other NATO allies want the Ukrainians to do is more or less disengage from that fight, uh, keep the Russians at bay, but usually uh, what they want them to do is uh, develop a war of maneuver against the Russians, kind of what they were able to do uh, back in the summertime and in the early fall, where first they captured the area around Kharkiv, and uh, then they also, in the south, captured the area around Kherson. So what the United States especially wants the Ukrainians to do is kind of redo that playbook, uh, but move further south, perhaps cut the Russian land bridge that exists between eastern uh, Ukraine, the Donbas region, and Crimea. If they cut that, then uh, that makes it much more difficult for the Russians to actually uh, resupply their forces, makes it much more difficult for the Russians to claim victory from a propaganda standpoint, and certainly it makes the Ukrainians uh, move forward a lot more quickly than they would otherwise be able to do. So it's basically the difference between a war of attrition, which we seem to be in right now, and a war of maneuver, which is what NATO and the U.S. want uh, the Ukrainians to be able to conduct. Now, I imagine a war of maneuver would be uh, would be helped by the fact that the NATO allies are sending, I saw some figure uh, today, 300 new tanks uh, mm -hmm. to the Ukraine to fight the Russians. Uh, is that and uh, are those tanks likely to be a uh, uh, create an advantage for Ukraine? 
Eventually, yes. The problem that you have is that the tanks uh, need to have a logistical supply chain that goes with them, and the crews, the tank crews, need to be trained on the equipment. So the two, well, the three main types of tanks that are coming in are British Challenger tanks, the German Leopard 2 tanks, and the American M1 Abrams tanks. So between all of those, the uh, Ukrainians have uh, a lot to, not only a lot to choose from, uh, but uh, they will also gain a large uh, maneuver contingent uh, that they will be able to do. Basically, what you're looking at is about 10 battalions, give or take, uh, that would be added to the Ukrainian inventory. And these Ukrainian tanks uh, would then be able to conduct that war of maneuver that the United States wants the Ukrainians to conduct. Uh, so it's a, it's a major effort. Uh, the figure that the Ukrainian ambassador to France gave is 321 tanks, uh, which is about what the Ukrainians say they need in order to move to more offensive operations. Okay. Uh, are the Ukrainians uh, inclined to pursue that advice or not? They tend to be very good about taking advice. Uh, they, uh, well, one of the reasons for that is that when the invasion started back in February of, of this past year, uh, they did not believe the United States intelligence estimates that the Russians would actually invade their country. Uh, they have, of course, been proven wrong, and the United States uh, has been proven correctly, at least the intelligence estimates of this type have been proven correct. And uh, that gives the United States a certain cachet with the Ukrainians. So they're likely to uh, you know, take uh, that advice. They also have had a lot of training since 2014, especially they've had a lot of training with U.S. forces, uh, both National Guard and active duty components. And that makes a difference. Uh, they uh, really want to be able to interoperate with uh, our kinds of forces. They also want to be able to work with each other in what's called a combined arms uh, maneuver element. And those kinds of things become really important in order to bring the kind of firepower to bear that you need in order to uh, maintain and conduct offensive operations. Okay, I only have got about a minute to answer this question for you to answer this question before we go to the break. Uh, but uh, I would assume if the Russians knowing know that there are 300 tanks on their way into the Ukraine pipeline, uh, I would think that they're going to try to act fast and get something going uh, before the tanks arrive. Is that likely? It is likely, and that's why uh, the supposition, Brad, is that the uh, Russians are going to mount an offensive either in the early spring or in the late winter. It could be as early as the end of February, and that uh, you know could definitely make a difference in terms of the way in which the Russians posture their forces and how quickly they uh, get their forces, especially the conscripted forces, as well as the people from the Wagner Group, that paramilitary outfit, uh, get them to the front, and that's. Uh, what we're seeing now, they're basically pouring men and materiel into the area around Bakhmut, which we talked about earlier, and that uh, is what they're trying to do in, in terms of increasing their offensive capability and moving forward. If they can achieve a breach there, they might be able to achieve uh, you know, further gains. Okay, uh, we're going to take a break here. Uh, so we can uh, bring back our radio, uh, let out our radio listeners, but we'll be continuing this interview with Cedric Layton, uh, CNN military analyst, uh, with our viewers on Twitter and Facebook. So don't go away. 
Okay, welcome back uh, to our radio listeners. Our guest in this half hour is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, military analyst for CNN. Uh, we are, we're talking about uh, Ukraine. I want to switch topics. Uh, over the weekend, uh, there were a couple, uh, I believe it started late last week when a uh, uh, U.S. Army uh, General, General Mike Minahan, uh, said that he uh, expected us to be in a war with China uh, in 2025. Uh, yesterday on one of the uh, uh, Sunday morning talk shows, the uh, chair of the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Representative Mike McCall, uh, said that he was sorry, uh, sad to say that General was probably right. Um, and, you know, we're talking, we're into 2023 now, and they were saying 2025. Uh, can you comment on those statements, please? Sure, absolutely, Brad. The uh, so the general was actually an Air Force general in question. Oh, Air Force, general okay. Mike, excuse me. Yeah, General General Mike Minahan is the commander of Air Mobility Command. So what he's responsible for is all the transport aircraft uh, that uh, ferry troops uh, from one theater to the other, uh, all the logistics that goes from one place to the other, uh, all of that huge air fleet. Uh, he is is in charge of that. Uh, that's about 500 aircraft or so. Um, General Minahan himself has a lot of experience in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so he served as the deputy commander of uh, U.S. PACOM, uh, which uh, is now called uh, the Indo-PACOM Theater. And uh, so he does know something about uh, you know the possibilities of, of war with China. Uh, one of the problems that he has with this statement, though, is it's kind of a know your audience uh, situation. Uh, what he was trying to do was exhort his troops to be ready from a military perspective. Uh, the problem that you have, especially as a four-star, is all of a sudden your audience is potentially much larger than just your, your own troops. And it uh, you know has potential diplomatic and military repercussions of a more geopolitical nature. Uh, so what he's saying is to his, his so, uh, airmen is to get ready. Uh, you know, make sure that your affairs are in order, make sure that you can actually sustain a fight, you know, make sure your training is up to date, make sure you're as proficient as you possibly can be on, you know, the aircraft that you're flying, uh, on the, the job that you're doing. And uh, so he's sending this to his subordinate commanders. Uh, when this kind of a, a missive gets out into the broader public, the interpretation, of course, is, oh, my God, he's got intelligence that's going to, uh, that's, uh, that says that, uh, you know, we're going to go to war with China. That is not necessarily the case. It is certainly possible that that could happen. Uh, never say never. Uh, but, and he has some valid reasons, you know, in his, in his letter, he has some valid reasons for why he's thinking the way he's thinking. Uh, but the key thing here is that this is not Department of Defense policy. Uh, the United States does not officially believe that this is going to happen. The intelligence agencies have not said, uh, at least publicly, that anything like this is going to happen within the next two years. It could happen later. It could never happen. Uh, but the job of a military commander, and we have to keep this in mind, is that he has to be, he or she has to be ready to fight tomorrow's war. Uh, they have to make sure that, you know, no matter what happens, that the troops are ready to go. And that's, in essence, what he was trying to accomplish with his with his letter. 
Well, he certainly got the attention of the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee chair. Um, yeah, uh, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask this question anyway. What would a war with China look like? It would center around Taiwan, um, I suspect. Uh, we have, what, the Seventh Fleet uh, in the Pacific who would undoubtedly uh, uh uh, sail through the uh, straits separating the People's Republic and Taiwan. Uh, I would imagine uh, that in a war like that, uh, Taiwan would be as devastated as the Ukraine probably is now. Uh, it would certainly be a war of extreme devastation. And, it, you know, I think initially you're right. Um, you know, the Really, the tinderbox, in essence, is Taiwan when it comes to a possible war with China. There are other flashpoints that could potentially come to into play, such as in the South China Sea, uh, something perhaps in the cyber realm. Uh, but uh, that is definitely the big flashpoint that everybody focuses on because China has very explicitly stated on numerous occasions and recently very vociferously that they want to reunite Taiwan if forced by necessary into the main. Mainland. Uh, now, President Biden has made statements uh, several times where he has said we would come to the defense of Taiwan. Uh, what the Taiwanese uh, are looking at is, uh, you know, trying to emulate as best they can what the Ukrainians are doing. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Ukraine is uh, in many places quite devastated. The infrastructure is shot, uh, the uh, uh, electricity grid, uh, the gas pipelines, all of those things are in dire need of repair and, uh, and protection. Um, the Taiwanese could expect something similar to that. They have a much smaller geographic area. Uh, to contend with than the Ukrainians do, but they have an advantage in that they are separated by the Taiwan Strait. Um, you're right, the Seventh Fleet would be the one to, in essence, do the screening uh, between the People's Republic and Taiwan. Um, how long they could last uh, in a conflict like that is also uh, something that is now uh, subject to some question. Uh, depending on which war game you look at, um, it's possible that uh, we, we could achieve a stalemate or uh, the Chinese could win a war like this. Uh, but uh, I think a war like this would spread very quickly beyond Taiwan. And there are other war games where the United States actually wins, but after much destruction. So it's in neither side's interest uh, to have this war. Uh, it's much better if this is resolved uh, peacefully. But uh, the Chinese proved with their exercises that they could mount uh, major maritime operations around Taiwan, in essence, blockading the island. And that's, I think, where they would start. Okay, let's uh, turn and uh, uh, at least get one question in. Uh, uh, the United States and Israel have announced uh, joint military uh, exercises. Uh, also, there are reports of drone strikes uh, in Iran. Now, I don't know if there are actually drone strikes. The Iranians just uh, said that. Uh, give, tell us what you think is going on there. So based on media reports, uh, it seems as if they were in fact drone strikes. The New York Times is saying that uh, Israel mounted drone strikes against an Iranian defense facility in the town of, in the city of Esfahan. Esfahan happens to be the scene of uh, a major defense factory that the Iranians have there. Uh, it also is the area in which they're doing some of their nuclear work and they have a major air base there, which just happens to house uh, old US F4, US 
built F-14 fighters. Uh, so uh, those are legacies, of course, from the Shah. But um, so that is one aspect of what's going on there. The Israelis uh, apparently did this, according to the New York Times, uh, because they are gearing up uh, for possible Iranian operations against Israel. Uh, so this was a preemptive strike, if this reporting is accurate. Uh, it does fall in line with some of the things that have happened in the past. So, you know, as, as we look at what's going on there, unrelated to this, or at least not a direct cause of any of this, um, are the U.S. and Israeli exercises that are going on right now. And those exercises are designed to show the ability of both countries to operate together. Uh, and uh, the obvious enemy in this particular case would be Iran. Uh, let me ask you one last quick question. Uh, last week, uh, the uh, they have the uh, nuclear doomsday clock, and they put that to just uh, before midnight. Uh, is was that accurate? It represents the the danger of a nuclear war, which uh, is pretty high. Uh, or they say it is pretty high. Is that do you, what did you, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, it's it's sadly not surprising that uh, the people that run the doomsday clock uh, moved it up uh, by a minute. I think it's like one minute before midnight now, according to that, right? Uh, so it is uh, a, it really a symbol of the danger in which uh, we're finding ourselves right now. The possibility of the Russians using tactical nuclear weapons uh, certainly exists in Ukraine. Uh, right now, they haven't said very much about that in the last few weeks, but before that, they did they did make some mention of that and that's the kind of thing that we have to watch out out for tensions are high around the world and it really will require some really cool heads to make sure that things don't get out of hand okay uh thank you very much colonel layton i appreciate you uh joining us on the show uh when there's tr whenever there's troubles in the world you can guarantee that uh, colonel layton will be on cnn and deadline dc uh, I want to thank Colonel Layton. I want to thank our first guest, Paul Lisnick, legal and political analyst for uh, WGN-TV in Chicago. And, of course, our intrepid, intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the trains run on time and the show stays online. We'll be back with more uh, shows uh, in the coming weeks and look forward to seeing you uh, when I'm back at Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.